Well, as we continue on in our journey through Isaiah this morning, we come to Isaiah chapter 63. Now, Isaiah chapters 61 or 60 to 62, uh, we covered the, the city that God is building, that glorious hope that we have that was started in Jesus Christ on his cross and that God is building even now and that will one day descend from heaven to be the perfect union of heaven and earth. Well, when we come to Isaiah 63, we, we get the, the flip side of this glorious city that God is building. Namely, we see the judgment, the wrath that God must pour out in order to build this city. And so first we'll have Austin come up and read for us from Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. And then Sarah will come up and read for us the next seven verses in Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 14, which is people remembering the faithfulness of God. And then from there, I want us to turn to the New Testament to see how the one who is exercising the wrath described in Isaiah 63 is none other than Jesus himself. And so in John 5, 21 to 29, Krista will read for us about how the Father gave all judgment into the Son's hands. And then finally, in Revelation 19, Ryan will come and read for us. And again, we will see how Jesus himself is the one who will one day Come in judgment. So these are very sobering texts, obviously, but my prayer is that especially as we look at Isaiah 63, that the Lord will use this text to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our faith. And so let's listen to the word of God now with reverence. Isaiah 63, <clears throat> the Lord's day of vengeance. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garnet from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Continuing with verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who, are, who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, 
who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, as I was uh, preparing this week, I was hoping to get from Isaiah 63.1 all the way to verse 14 as we read, but as I was wrestling with the first six verses, I just found there's too much there, uh, too many questions that I had to move on past that, so I apologize in advance. We won't really be able to touch on verses 17 or 7 to 14, but we will uh, look closely at verses uh, 1 to 6, uh, Lord willing. Now, verses 1 to 6, as you just heard, are very uh, challenging verses, are they not? Speaking of the Lord coming and trampling people in a winepress so that their blood spatters on his garment. It is certainly not the sort of thing that we in our modern age much like to consider or think about. And so in that way, these words, these verses are very challenging to us. And one word that continually came to mind as I was reading these words is the word haunted. Haunted is a very interesting word as I was thinking about it. In one sense, when you say that something is haunted, you mean that something is, is there, right? Like if you say there's a, a house that is haunted, you mean that there seems to be something in that house. And yet, on the other hand, if, if something were obviously there, you would just say someone lives there. And so you say it's haunted because something seems to be there, but you can't see anything. In other words, nothing seems to be there. 
And so haunted is kind of like describing this, this halfway point between something that is truly there and you know is there and something that doesn't seem to be there and you're not sure that it's there. And so you say that it's, it's haunted. And I think that as we read texts like this, and even as I reflect more on chapters 60 to 62, I think that one of the instructions for us is that we should see ourselves as living in a Christ-haunted world. That we are living in a Christ-haunted world. Meaning that when we go about our lives day to day, we are, of course, not going to see Jesus Christ himself around every corner. We're not going to enter into stores or into banks or into schools and see the person of Jesus Christ there. And yet, in our minds, the person of Jesus Christ should loom large over everything that we do day to day. Because Christ is indeed present. And as we saw in chapters 60 to 62, Christ is present for the building of his kingdom. He is present for the building of his city. And in that way, we see that Christ is present in hope. And we should take great strength and great comfort from the fact that Christ is present in the world today and that he is working through his people in the world today for good purposes. And yet here in Isaiah 63, we also see that Christ is present in a very different way. And that is that Christ is present in judgment. He is coming in wrath. Now, as we looked at the topic of God building his city, what we saw is that God is truly building his city beginning with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, that that was the foundation of the city. And then we saw how God is still building his city today throughout church history, through the spread of his gospel and the building of his church, God is building his city. And yet how that city will not be completed until the age to come, when Jesus returns and the dead are raised and the perfect city of God comes down from heaven. And so there is a past tense in which the city has been founded. There is a present tense in which God is building a city. And there is a future tense in which God's city will come. And as I was studying this passage, Isaiah 63, 1-6 this morning, I realized that this passage has the same emphasis. That there is a sense in which God's judgment has already come. There is a sense in which God's judgment is happening on the earth right now. And there is a sense in which God's judgment is still yet to come. And so I would like those three realities to form the outline of my message this morning. I want to look at first the the past, the history of judgment, what God has already accomplished. Then I want to look at what God is doing today in judgment. And then I want to look at the future judgment that is coming. Now this theme of judgment, both present and future, has been with us even since the very first pages of the New Testament. John the Baptist, when he was simply preparing the way of the Lord, even before Jesus' ministry began, when he spoke to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so John the Baptist himself was preaching in this God-haunted world where the wrath of God was coming, and he was telling people, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And John the Baptist went on. This is Matthew chapter 3. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Beloved, if John the Baptist could say in his own day that the axe is laid to the root of the tree, how much more should we be able to say in our day that the axe is laid to the root of the tree? Again, we should be living in this Christ-haunted world. That the return of Christ is imminent. That the judgment of Christ is imminent. And therefore, we live in such a way as to say that we believe that this judgment is very soon at hand. And it shapes our entire lives. We don't live as if God is far off, as if we can just sit back today and relax and we have years and years of ease and peace. But rather with John the Baptist and with the whole testimony of Scripture, we say, no, Jesus is returning. Judgment is coming and we want to be prepared. And so as we look at Isaiah 63, again, we see these words of judgment. And as I was studying these words, I realized that these words don't simply apply to some future day where Christ is returning. They apply to our day and age right now. And indeed, they even apply to things already accomplished. And so let's go there now. So first, the inauguration of God's judgment. When did God's judgment begin? When did Isaiah 63 begin this treading of the winepress of God's wrath? Well, beloved, I hope it's no surprise to us to realize that this judgment began on the cross of Calvary. The treading out of the winepress began with Jesus Christ himself. Now, it is a little difficult to see this in Isaiah 63. It seems like Isaiah 63 is very clearly teaching that the servant of God, that the Messiah is treading out the winepress of the nations. And indeed, I do believe that that is the emphasis of Isaiah 63. But nevertheless, I think we're also supposed to see hints in Isaiah 63 of the servant of God himself being the one who is trodden. I say that first of all because Isaiah 63 comes after Isaiah 53, where we read that the servant of the Lord was going to be crushed for our iniquities. And so this idea of the servant himself being crushed, being trampled on, is not a new idea to Isaiah. So when we come to Isaiah 63, we should have in the back of our minds that, wait, there is a servant who has already been crushed. And so as we read about someone doing crushing, we should have in our minds that even the one who is crushing has himself been crushed. Now, the verse where I see most clearly that this can allude to the cross of Jesus Christ is 63, verse 3. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. So first, just try to take that statement in a very literal sense. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. Now, that peoples, that word peoples, can be taken in an absolute sense, meaning people, period, meaning that there were no people at all in this wine press, that Christ himself was alone in this wine press. And then he says, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. And so in Christ, 
our blood was put on his garments. And the New Testament indeed tells us that when Christ Jesus himself was crucified, that our own blood was taken from us. One very famous verse that teaches this, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so when Christ died upon the cross, we were crucified there with him. When Christ himself was trampled, we were trampled. Our blood was put on his garments at Calvary. And so when Jesus died upon the cross, we ourselves died. We were crushed on that day when Jesus himself was crushed. And so, beloved, we can take heart that the judgment of God began there. That it began in Jesus treading in this wine press alone. Indeed, this image becomes even clearer when we turn to Revelation 19, which we read just before the start of the service. Revelation 19 picks up on the same image of Isaiah 63, of the wrath of God coming. Revelation 19, again starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now notice verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's exactly what Isaiah 63 says, does it not? That his robes are covered in blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. John 1 says that Jesus is the word. 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, notice the contrast to their garments, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress in the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now notice in verse 15, the tense of the verb there, it's future tense. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And yet notice in verse 13, his robe is already covered in blood. His robe is covered in blood before he comes to the winepress. The blood of his robe is his own blood. He has already been treading down himself before he goes to tread the winepress of God's wrath. And so, beloved, we can praise God that God's wrath has already been poured out on his son so that it does not need to be poured out on us. Beloved, if we take refuge in Jesus Christ, if we trust in him, if we submit to him as king of kings and lord of lords, then we can be sure that in that day of wrath, in that day of judgment, we have nothing to fear because the judgment has already been poured out on us in Jesus Christ. That our blood has already been spattered on his garments and his blood has already been shed. That even before he enters into battle against the nations, his robe is already bloody. He has already tread the winepress. And so we can have confidence this morning that those of us who hope in Christ need not fear the judgment of God. And so this is the past tense of God's judgment. Indeed, I say this is the inauguration of God's judgment. First, he slayed his son. But then we will see 
after he slayed his son, that was not the end of his judgment. Just as that was the beginning of his kingdom, that was also the beginning of his judgment. And so now let us look at the ongoing judgment of God. Now, there are many different passages that I could turn to here, and I would love to make this a whole message in and of itself. But for the sake of time, I just want to look at one passage, Luke 21. And I invite you to turn there now, because we are going to look at an extended section of Luke 21. So Luke 21, verses 5 to 36, is what we want to look at. So again, the... The judgment, the wrath of God, the treading of this winepress began on Jesus Christ himself. But here in Luke 21, I want us to see how it carries on in the present day. Now, in some ways, what Jesus did when he died upon a cross and he rose again is he actually set up the nations. He set up the world for a greater judgment because he made a way, did he not, of entering into God's mercy. And the very Son of God became manifest on the earth. And the very pure Word of God was proclaimed by God Himself such that now when we hear the words of Jesus, we have no excuse not to turn to God because Jesus has made a way. And in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, as you know, did not move from the nation of Israel and He sent His disciples throughout Israel in the time of His own ministry, in the time of the New Testament itself. And so even before the close of the New Testament, it's very clear that the nation of Israel has rejected the mercy of God because Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel. He proclaimed mercy. He proclaimed forgiveness to the nation of Israel. And how did the nation of Israel respond? Well, they crucified the Lord of glory, the author of life, and they did not repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. And that means that because they rejected Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem was preeminently worthy of judgment because of what they had done to Jesus the Son. And so hear these words of prophecy now coming from Jesus Christ in Luke 21, starting in verse 5. It said, And while some were speaking of the temple... How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So pause there for a moment. Notice that we're saying the end will not be at once. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, right? The end of the temple. He just said that no stone of the temple will be left on top of the other. Now continuing on in verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Peoples fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, I want to observe three things from this text. First, notice that Jesus is indeed talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, is he not? He begins by talking about how not one stone of the temple will be left on top of the other, so he's talking there about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Luke 21, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And he's talking to these people, is he not? He's telling them to keep your eyes open. Be aware that all this is coming and don't be fooled that it's coming before this time. He's warning them about what is going to happen in their city. And so Jesus is talking about a very present and imminent judgment that is going to come upon the people that he is talking to. And so this is the context of what Jesus is saying. That's the first thing that we should notice from this text. Second, notice that while it is foreign armies that will surround and destroy Jerusalem, again, that's verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. It also says in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that these armies that are surrounding Jerusalem, that are going to destroy Jerusalem, are nothing other than the Son of Man coming to Jerusalem in judgment. Jesus came to destroy Jerusalem even in the lifetimes of those whom he was speaking to because they rejected his message of mercy and they crucified the author of life. 
And then the third thing to notice is that God's people are certainly affected by this judgment. Again, God's people were in Jerusalem even when the judgment came upon Jerusalem. You can see that in verses 16 to 19. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Beloved, part of my burden in proclaiming this message is that I believe that God's judgment could be very near to our doorstep. Not simply the final eschatological judgment that I'm going to speak of in just a moment, but a judgment that comes even before that time. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. There were Roman legions that surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they did not leave one stone of the temple on top of another. Every last word of Jesus given to us in Luke 21 was fulfilled by Roman armies in 70 A.D. So the judgment, even upon cities that reject the Messiah, began to come in 70 A.D. Indeed, we see even later on in Matthew 21, it said, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying that as the message of the gospel is proclaimed, that if that message is not received, then that message will come in judgment. And that stone that will come against them hearkens us to Daniel 2, where a stone falls and it destroys the kingdoms of the earth. And we see that that stone destroyed the nations of Persia and the nation of Rome because the gospel was proclaimed there and they did not repent. And so even as the message of the gospel progresses in our world today, judgment follows in its wake for those who do not receive its word of repentance. Beloved, judgment could be very near to us even here in America. Now, I don't know this for a fact. God has not given me any words of prophecy to know that judgment is very soon going to come on America. But even as I look out across our culture today, I know that over 63 million babies have been killed by abortion since 1973. That is a lot of innocent blood that has been shed in our land. I can see that pornography produced mostly here in America is a multi-billion dollar industry that only seems to grow and no one wants to come against or stand opposed to. And I see many other signs of wickedness in our land for which God could very rightfully come in judgment. And if God could come in judgment, then that means that we must be prepared. That means that the words that Jesus gives to his people in Luke 21 to be prepared, to be ready to stand in the midst of the judgment apply to us as well. Beloved, our faith cannot rest on the fact that we are comfortable, that we are prosperous, that God seems to be doing good things for us. Yes, we should be thankful for all these good things that God gives us, for the fact that we have nice homes to go home to, the fact that we have food in the refrigerator, cars to drive, all of these good things. But beloved, all of these things could be taken away in a moment 
from the wrath of God coming upon our land. And so here again, these words of Jesus to his people in Luke 21, it says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. So first, hear that, beloved, that when the judgment of God comes upon unbelievers, it may indeed be the case that even some believers perish. Not because they are under the wrath of God, because we know that Jesus has borne all of the wrath of God, but because we live in the midst of this people and God cannot bring judgment upon this people, this nation, without us also being impacted by this judgment. And so some of us may even die. But then notice these ironic, amazing verses that Jesus goes on to say next in verse 18. He says, some of you they will put to death, but then in verse 18 he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. How can it be that Jesus says that some of you will be put to death? And then the very next sentence he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Jesus is saying that when that judgment comes, when the wrath of God comes, when God is treading upon the winepress of his wrath, even in our nation, we may well suffer great physical loss, but beloved, our souls will be secure for all eternity. Not one eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ will be lost. Indeed, if we persevere to the end, it says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives as we persevere in the midst of such adversity, in the midst of such suffering, we can be sure that we are actually storing up even greater inheritance in the age to come. So, beloved, even if our suffering is great in the midst of God's wrath, then we can be confident that God is holding us fast and he is preserving us for the age to come, even if he does not preserve us in this present age. And so, beloved, I submit to you that even on the earth right now, Jesus Christ is treading in that winepress of his wrath. He has already tread upon Jerusalem. He has already tread upon Rome. He has already tread upon many other nations. And again, the Lord has not given me the wisdom to know where he will turn next in judgment. But I am confident that we are living in the days of God's judgment. And it is spreading across the earth even now, and therefore we should not be surprised when God's judgment falls upon our nation or upon some other nation, especially if it has rejected his gospel message. Now, the third phase of judgment will indeed be that final judgment. This will be the final conclusion, the final fulfillment of Isaiah 63 of God treading out his wrath in his winepress. There will be a final day when blood will be shed such as will never be shed again in all the history of the earth. And those who are slain in that day will go to eternal torment. And again, the New Testament tells us that it is Jesus himself who will be treading the winepress in that day. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is it 
that is appointed for that day of judgment when all the world will stand before him. It is the same one who has been raised from the dead. It is Jesus Christ, and that day has already been appointed. Again, beloved, we live in a God-haunted world. Christ has already been appointed for judgment. His day is coming, and therefore we must be ready for that day. Indeed, we see this day taken up in the book of Revelation, in the same image of Isaiah 63, taken up of this very last and final day. It says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Beloved, this trampling of the winepress, this blood being shed, will go on forever and ever. And Beloved, if this is the case, then how much fear and reverence should we live in today? knowing that that judgment is possible, indeed that that day has been appointed. That means that we cannot ignore that day or we cannot treat it like it is an unimportant or a distant reality. No, beloved, if these words are true, then there is no more serious reality in all of existence. There is nothing to which we should better fix our minds on and make sure that we are prepared for that day. We must understand the immeasurable horror of sin, the immeasurable consequences of this sin, and we must flee from that sin so that we can be found in Christ, so that we can be found in that judgment that has already been poured out on that day that is to come. And so, beloved, if you are here this morning and you have never fled to Jesus Christ for refuge, if you do not know what will happen to you on that final day of judgment, when Jesus will indeed return, and he will indeed begin the final exercise of God's wrath, and I encourage you this very morning, this very moment, to flee to Jesus Christ. How do you flee to Jesus Christ? Well, you look to his cross. You look to his death that was done for you, and you receive that by faith. You say, Lord, I believe that when you died, I died. And then you count yourself as dead, and you live, you walk in newness of life, and the resurrection life that Jesus has offered. But if you don't count your old self dead, if you are not willing to crucify, to lay down all that you were before, you have not yet set your faith in Jesus Christ. And so count yourself as dead in Jesus Christ this morning that you might have newness of life in him and rescue from the day of judgment. And so flee to Christ this morning that you may know peace, that you may know rest. And also, I encourage everyone who has already trusted in Jesus Christ to remember that this day is imminent and to remember that this day is severe. And so as you look at your walk of faith, as you look at your life today, I encourage you to not get unrealistic expectations 
about how God is supposed to make your life better in one way or another, or God is supposed to help you improve at this or that. Yes, we all want to grow in many different ways in Christ Jesus, but we must remember that the most basic thing that we are saved from when we turn to Christ Jesus is the wrath of God. And even if walking in the way of Christ seems very burdensome in our lives today, seems very difficult, we don't seem to be benefiting from it a great deal, our lives don't seem to be getting any easier, that is not reason to give up on Christ or to give up on the Christian faith. Because ultimately, our salvation is not from the pains of this life or the difficulty of this life. Our salvation is from that day of wrath that is coming. And therefore, we persevere and we hold on even when it doesn't feel good because we want to be saved from that day of judgment that is coming. And then finally, beloved, I know I have already said this, but again, be prepared for the judgment of God even to come in our day. One of the heaviest burdens that I carry as a pastor is knowing that the world as we see it today may not always be the case. That great suffering and pain may come upon our land. The day may come when all of our bank accounts are emptied out. When we lose our own lives or the lives of family members to great violence, when other sort of judgments begin to come upon this earth. And I look out across our congregation, I wonder who will be able to stand on that day? Who is ready for that day of judgment that is coming? And I want you all to be ready for that day. I don't want any of you to come to that day when something terrible happens and to suddenly reject God because he didn't protect you, because he didn't do something for you that he thought he was supposed to do. Beloved, as the Christians in Jerusalem experienced in 70 AD, when the judgment of God comes, it may even mean the death of our very selves. And yet we are to hold fast, even in the midst of that, and not be surprised that it is happening. 1 Timothy tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, we can be thankful to God that we don't experience more of that persecution, that we don't experience more of that suffering. But even though we don't experience it now, we must be prepared for the day when it may come. Because today, even as it is the day of salvation, it is also the day of God's wrath coming against those who do not respond to the gospel. And so, beloved, be prepared for God's judgment. Be prepared for both his final judgment and his present judgment. And the primary way that we are prepared for that final judgment and that present judgment is by resting in that past judgment that has already been accomplished in Christ Jesus knowing that the wrath of God has already been poured out in full on Jesus Christ and so that we do have a place where we can rest in safety and security. And so praise God that such wrath has been poured out and live today sober and righteous lives, preparing for the wrath that is yet to come. Would you join me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, we know that you are a God of wrath, as fearful as it may be to us and as unpleasant at times as it may be to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to not ignore the fact that you are a God of wrath and help us instead of just pushing it to the periphery of our minds, help us instead to 
look at it and to live rightly in light of it. And so, God, I do pray that you would give us each wisdom as to how we ought to live now. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare us to endure in the days of judgment that are coming. Lord, would you now receive our prayers of petition, our prayers of intercession on behalf of our own church and on behalf of the world around us.